You are listening to an episode of the Technology Consulting Series on Design Talk. Okay, welcome to the podcast. I am Dimitrios and I am Theodoros. Our guest today is Tom Rourke. Tom works in Kindrill with the most interesting job title, Global Leader for Co-Creation. You are very welcome to the podcast, Tom. Could you say a few words about yourself and Kindrill? Okay, so Kindrel, let me start with Kindrel. So Kindrel is a spin-out from IBM. So we are the, what would have been uh, IBM's infrastructure services business, right? So we're a almost 90,000 person company. Um, we were spun out formally in November, and that was a process that was announced um, in October of 2020. So it's been quite a significant transformation for us. I had worked with IBM for over 15 years prior to that. Um, and was most recently their VP for business development. And I'm now the global leader for co-creation for Kindle. Um, so we're, uh, we're, we're going, we describe ourselves at certain points as the world's largest startup, but I guess it's probably more uh, analogous to compare us to say something like an MBO or a, or a spin out in that kind of, kind of structure. Okay, thank you. For someone starting, could you sketch the learning journey to become a consultant? Uh, with us specifically or overall, I guess my, my experience is true. I, I, maybe if I just elaborate a little bit on my own experience, I mean, as well as having worked with Kindle, I've had a number of different roles, including, for example, teaching um, a number of programs actually in the graduate school. So my exposure to consulting is through a combination of things. One is as a consultant, very briefly myself, um, but look more significantly as a person kind of leading a very large strategic engagements where we would, where consulting would have been part of our offering right and i guess we're also in the process of building actually a new consulting business for kindrel and that what's interesting about that is actually there are a number of components of that that are um what you might describe as kind of traditional consulting skills so the kind of people who go through programs with you know people like accenture deloitte uh, any of those kind of uh, firms and then very specialist technical consulting sort of consulting architecture uh, type skills which is closer to the core of what we do today um, but actually what we're aspiring to is a more broad-based consulting business in in the future and um, now the typical path that you know consultant people joining the consulting profession take is that they'll come out of you know, a university program, they'll join, you know, one of the larger consulting firms and they'll learn the craft of consulting, right? Um, and will progress through a series of domains. But the other path, and I guess the path that's probably closer to my experience and to the experience of my colleagues is, is people who have been deep domain experts uh, in, in some particular domain where they haven't been consulting per se, but they actually go into consulting as something they do later in, in their careers. So the majority of the very senior people I work with are actually people who've taken that second path. So at a variety of, you know, they've risen maybe through a number of staff roles in a company, they've had responsibility for, for some domain, you know, management of infrastructure, you know, cloud architecture examples, uh, strategic transformation. So they've done it as their, you know, kind of day job within a role within a corporation and actually relatively late in their career, they are moving into the world of consulting, right? So there are, this was, there are two distinct paths. There are the people who, if you like, set out to be consultants as their profession from the outset. And then those people who have developed their expertise through you know, whatever other development of path they've followed and are then migrating across and um, into consulting. 
Now, it's kind of interesting, actually, because what you end up with is where the first group tends to major on craft and develop content over time. And the second group tend to come with a tremendous amount of content. And the challenge for them is to develop craft and then to integrate into an overall kind of consulting engagement, if that's helpful. Thank you. Could you talk about co-creation? Does it relate to design thinking? It does. It does. I mean, the co-creation is... It's one of those phrases where it's it defines you know a different approach about how we work with our customers. Now you have to be careful about all of these phrases, right? Because and if I take a tangent for a second, you know if you go back five years, right, the term agile was everywhere, right? But you could identify that the number of people who truly understood what agile and agile development meant and were kind of well versed in how it should be applied as a proportion of the total number of people who were using the phrase, the people who knew what they were talking about was a very small group of people, right? And we were slightly in danger of that becoming something that happens to us with in, in the context of co-creation. But in essence, when we talk about co-creation with our customers in particular, it is that kind of collaborative working towards a shared outcome. And um, rather than in our world, you know, typically you would have had, for example, in the context of new business, you would have had people issuing RFPs, requests for proposals, where someone, you know, sets out and says, here's what I want, articulated in, you know, multiple hundred pages, and then you come back and you give, I give you an answer, and then you come back and you ask for clarification, and we basically trade paper with each other. We, we're, as an industry, we're trying to move closer to something where we're developing in tandem with our customers. Now, the method and means for doing that, in most cases, is design thinking. Right. So the, the, the approach that, that you know, most people are taking to the enablement of co-creation with their customers is design thinking. But design thinking in itself, again, is a very broad concept. Right? There are you know, any number of different methods available. There are different approaches to the application of design thinking. Our particular mo- model is what I would describe as designer-led. So it's not just about kind of giving a broad brush of people a sort of thin layer of design thinking capabilities. It's about embedding deep design skills and particularly research design skills at the heart of our teams. Thank you. How or when do you start the process with a client? I mean, again, that's interesting because we, we talk about three distinct contexts for the application of co-creation. Now, it's not to say that that's an exhaustive frame, but we talk about three different contexts. So the first context we talk about is what we call new logo. The second context is what we call as new scope. And the third context is what we call new start. Now in our world, new logo is obviously one where we do not have a pre-existing relationship with this customer. So much of the focus is about our coming to understand their business and their needs and their personas, and them coming to understand our capabilities and our differentiators. The second context is the context around what we call new scope. So we've an existing relationship but we're looking to add some significant additional dimension to that relationship. Right? And then that third category we'll talk about new start is, you know, we could have a very long standard relationship, multiple decade relationship, you know, huge amounts of money transferring, lots of services delivered, but actually we need to transform that, you know, and there are multiple things to that there, you know, we want to transform it because perhaps the business isn't as profitable as we need it to be, or it could be that the customer's needs have fundamentally changed. Um, And how we apply co-creation and design thinking varies in each of those contexts. Now, just to come back to your, your original question, where do you start? I mean, the general guideline is the earlier, the better, right? Um, because there is a, 
you know, the essence of it is making sure you've understood the correct question before you jump in to solutioning. One of the traps that we have to be very careful about avoiding is there's a little bit of a tendency for people to bring design and design thinking in as a later step in the process. And, and sometimes it's kind of like, can you guys do work some magic? You know, like you're, you're, it's not unusual to get a request where someone says, well, look, you know, we've been working with this customer for months and we're a bit stuck. Can you guys come in and do some design thinking and unstick us? And, and that's rarely successful, right? So, you know, the, the general guideline is the earlier you start, the better. And then you work, you know, that as a kind of consistent backbone to how you work with the customer. Thank you. Uh, what do you say to the statement that ideas and solutions are easy? The real problem is finding real problems. So, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like there is a, and if you can imagine, you know, we're an engineer, our heritage is as an engineering culture, right? And people are extremely proud of what they've already done, of the solutions they've already developed, of the, the, the products and services that they've already defined, right? Now, um, that leads to people being super enthusiastic to want to get to the moment where you start giving people what you already believe to be the answer. Um, and that, that leads us into all kinds of difficulties. Like, I mean, our, my colleagues are really, really, really good at what they do. The big challenges are, have we adequately understood what it is that the customer um, really needs, right? And actually, if I can give you an example of something which is not directly related to my technical experience, but I think it is kind of instructive to how this works. Um, when I worked with IBM, we used to have a program which was described as our corporate service core, right? And it was where you could kind of work on pro bono projects across the world, um, you know, with, with financial support from, from IBM at the time. Now, I did my corporate service core work in the city of Ahmedabad in Gujarat province in India. And we worked very much with the, 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 the civil authorities in, in Ahmedabad, which is a very rich, interesting city that has grown from having half a million citizens the year I was born to somewhere between eight and a half and 10 million citizens now. And they're not quite sure how many they have. Right. So it's um, hugely, uh, you know, aggressively growing city, but it's also an extraordinarily diverse city. So there are sitting right next to each other, some you know, very different communities, a very strong Muslim community. There's a very strong uh, Hindu community. There's a giant community and they're all packed together in this, in this city where in that province, there has been a history of, you know, so, so significant, you know, civil, civil tensions. One of the projects they asked us to work on was the communicating back to the citizen when the city had helped solve a problem for the citizen. Okay. So the, the basically what they were saying is, look, we do lots of things for the citizens, but we're not great at kind of getting back to people and telling them that we solved their problem. And, and we want help with how we do this. Now, coming from a kind of very Western traditional consulting background, our people all jumped in and they immediately started talking about like technology solutions for rich, you know, communicating back to the citizens. But they also jumped on the thing straight away of, we can reduce the number of citizen complaints, citizen issues by X percent, 30, 40, 50%. And, and we were, you know, talking to the city going, hey, you know, as well as giving you Uh, the ability to communicate back to the citizen, we can actually help reduce the number of citizen complaints, you know, by half, right? And this will save you a huge amount of money, blah, 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 blah. Standard kind of business case for these things. And I could tell that the senior public servant that we were talking to was not comfortable with our framing 
And with a little bit of digging, what we realized was that actually reducing the number of citizen complaints was not in and of itself a good thing or perceived as the good thing that we thought it would be. Because what they were were moments of interaction between the citizen and the city. And actually their view would be that if you could give us the capacity to double the number of complaints we could handle, that would be a better outcome than halving the number of complaints in total. Because the logic was, the more interaction the citizen has with the city, the more they see the city as the appropriate authority to whom they should take their issues, and the less likely they are to actually look inwardly into their own you know, kind of sub-communities, which in fact would be a bad thing for the city. Now, now my point being, you know, we were in danger of, I mean, it wasn't a kind of, it wasn't an example of using design thinking per se, but clearly understanding the real problem and the real outcome that the city was striving for was super important. And we were at real risk of completely missing the point for that city. For that city, citizen engagement, customer complaints, as it were, were opportunities for them to be able to demonstrate to the citizen how the city worked for them, right? And, it, and I've just come back to it a lot over time in that we very often do not take the time to adequately frame out and understand the dimensions of the problem before jumping quickly to, to possible solutions, right? So I guess I would agree with the kind of contention in the framing of your question, which is, you know, taking that time to really empathetically understand the needs of the customer and make sure we're focused on the right problem is the essence of the value um, of, of a sort of a design thinking approach and co-creation approach with a customer. Thank you very much. Uh, should we separate the strategic from the technical aspects of a transformation? Um, well, I, suppose I, I saw that question in the, in the draft and I, I guess there's a, you know, there's a number of ways you could kind of, you could decompose that. But if I, if I follow on from um, the point I was making earlier, the, the technical aspects, the project aspects, the, you know, the budgeting and trans, you know, the budget and programmatic dimensions of a transformation um, can be huge and complex and become clear quickly. But if you aren't clear about the strategy you're trying to lead towards, then you, you can get lost. You can also get lost very quickly. And, and like an example of what's going on with us at the moment is, you know, we have a huge transformation being driven by our CIO function. Um, and there are kind of two broad drivers. There's, an, there's one which has got quite a lot of urgency to it. And then there's one which is the broader strategic piece, right? So the broader strategic imperative at a super high level is a radical simplification of the organization because we're a much smaller organization, we're a much flatter organization, um, and with an emphasis on automation. The shorter term dynamic is we need to disconnect ourselves from the systems and processes that we have inherited from IBM, and we need to do that within the fixed term of an agreement that we have with IBM, and the clock is ticking on that very rapidly. Right. So everybody jumped into all the work that needed to be done around um, the sort of short term stuff while keeping the longer term strategic thing in mind, but perhaps back of mind. And what emerged really quickly was that actually, if you don't keep that strategic imperative right in front of you, 
you start making um, a bunch of short-term choices that tie your hands and limit your ability to stay focused on the strategy, right? So, you know, for example, you know, we talk about being flat, fast, and focused, right? And the fast piece has needed some uh, unpicking because what we said to people is the fast piece and the simplification piece are super closely related, right? And the reason for that is because fast was getting translated into frenetic. Fast was getting translated into, we have no time to think, we just need to act, right? And actually, when we linked it back to, no, 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 hang on a second, the really key thing to fast is about long-term simplification, that has gotten people come back around and thinking about like what are the broader strategic outcomes we're trying to aim at, right? So I think you, you cannot fully separate them, there is a there is a need to you know how do you maintain focus on the strategic outcomes you're you're striving towards while continuing to actually progress on some of the more tactical technical things now i'm not sure am i answering your question but i think that's just a, the perspective i had as i saw your question earlier and as i was thinking about our the, our context in kindrel thank you very much i think you answered the question um does the startup motto of fail fast and fail forward apply in a co corporate environment? It does, but it's really difficult. <laughs> um, and, and I can tell you, you know, I, I, this is probably a terribly politically incorrect analogy, right? But it's, but it's very hard to kind of get people to show up for the, you know, the, the, the new cultural dance party in, in, you know, in the village square, if they've had to kind of walk past the, the, you know, the, 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 the stocks where people have been putting the stocks for failing on some task um, along the way, right? So it, it is, if the culture has been one where failure is, is, is punished in some way, right? And, and, and punishment is too strong a word, but it's, it's an appropriate word. It's like, you know, if, if failure has been one of those things that, you know, people have always paid a price for, right? Um, you've got to be very careful about how you kind of try and move the culture into one where you do fail fast and move for, move on, right? And like that's a really tricky trans transition, right? You know, so when you're establishing something completely new, you can kind of set the ground rules, you can set the tone, you can set the culture, um, but everybody comes to that with a set of experiences, right? So, you know, you don't want... You don't want people to not care about outcomes. You don't want people to, you know, um, somehow think that, you know, disappointing a customer or failing to stick to a deadline or, you know, not delivering on what you committed to is, is, is desirable. But, but failure because you tried something and it didn't work out the way you expected to does need to be something that's, that, that is celebrated, right? So you do, it is important that you can get into that mode. Um, but it's really challenging. And, you know, we have found as we've moved out of um, one culture into another, actually, we had not actually appreciated as individuals and as groups the extent to which we had been kind of conditioned by our previous experience. Right? Like it's a really, it's a really interesting and ongoing conversation around you know why are we seeing some what we would describe as legacy behaviors persist and it's just basically just people it's really hard to change to change people's habits right you know 
to try and get from a mode where into a mode which is the worst thing you can do is not try something right so like actually we're now in a mode where if you tried it and it didn't come off provided you learned from it and you had a plan for what would happen if it didn't go well and you kind of taken ownership for you know rectifying the situation and moving on that's a good thing and that's better than sitting waiting for someone to tell you what to do right it's very difficult to shift out of that right um and i know i'm not directly addressing your question but the, the net of it is you do need to move into that kind of fail fast learn from it move on type culture but in an in an established culture that is really challenging that is like you you really do have to constantly communicate 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 you need to be if you're a senior leader you need to be very open you need to be very willing to be vulnerable and um, we are really lucky in that our partner sorry our president mark our sorry our president our ceo uh, president ellie keenan but our ceo martin schroeder is an extraordinarily open an engaging individual. I mean, he's very demanding in terms of what he wants us to try and achieve, but he's very open about, you know, if we try something and it doesn't come off, being very transparent about that, and um, but then showing people a path to move on. Do you have any advice on enable shared understanding across and between teams? Y- y- yes, I do. <laughs> um, so, so l- let me kind of personalize it a little bit, right? So the role that I'm in. I essentially created um, through the course of last summer, right? And in the context of basically trying to sell it to people, right? To sort of sell it to multiple shareholders, right? Um, I I ended up having to talk to lots and lots and lots of people. Now, one of the things that's great about our culture is it's really open. You know, like I I I was working look, because, largely because of the way. You know, education system worked differently when I grew up in Ireland. I did all of my college stuff at night, but I was working 40 years last October and I moved into a new job, right? And in the entirety of my career, other than a period where I was CEO of a small company, I don't think I've had quite the experience of such an open culture um, in my career ever, right? Now, the openness is only part of it because you have to then be willing to navigate that openness, right? So you have to be willing to connect dots with people to talk across boundaries to not be you know unduly protective about your own boundary right and so it, it sounds trite but the the first and absolute key is communication constant constant communication and that is both structured and unstructured so you do need a certain number of people within the organization who by dint of their you know their skills or their confidence or their disposition that are kind of filling this role of constantly networking across the company just 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 absolutely actively connecting people now you you go with a mindset of every connection you make adds value for both people on on from both ends of that connection not every connection is as valuable as the next one but it is really really important so so the what we are learning is you know the formal structures that you put in for communicating with people for telling people what's going on for connecting teams they need to be supplemented by a mindset um and by a sort of an active kind of reaching out and joining dots and you know not being protective of your kind of emperors or fiefdoms or territories and you'll get lots of people who are like you you what one of the things that's happening at the moment is it's becoming very clear 
who are the people who are playing defense to whatever authority or resources they already have under their control um, versus the people who are actively curious about what other teams do, are actively committed to shared success across all of the organization, um, who are kind of looking for ways in which they can contribute and help to what somebody else is doing, right? So if I kind of summarize it, I think it's communication, but I think it's communication backed by a mindset and it's supplementing all the formal communication channels with a, you know, a very vigorous, informal, constant connecting across people. Um, I think that would be my, my key, key insight there. Thank you very much. Um, where do you see data analytics in the consulting palette? So there's two things to that. Um, if I try to relate it to the design thinking piece, but it's not, it's not exclusive to the design and design thinking piece, but, but hopefully it illustrates it, right? Um, we fell in the past into the brand that we operated under in, in IBM was Garage. That was the brand we used for our design thinking with our customers, it's this thing called IBM Garage. Now, one trap we fell into was where we had a garage for everything. You know, we had a security garage, we had a cloud garage, we had a, you know, resiliency garage. So, you know, you're, the problem with that one is you are saying to the customer, let's have an open conversation about your needs while clearly signaling to them the hammer you're going to try and sell them at the end of the conversation, right? So you don't want to go into that trap. On the other hand, what you don't want to have is a situation where every conversation with the customer um, is a completely clean whiteboard and a brand new and open pack of post-it notes. Now, between those two things though, what you're finding is customers are looking for you to bring value into a conversation. And in our world, that translates into this use of this phrase assets and insights, right? So, so where the data and AI thing kicks in significantly is, you know, companies like ours with all of the experience that we have, have a tremendous amount of data about all kinds of things, you know, service performance, you know, people's behaviors, all kinds of stuff. And basically customers are looking in a consulting engagement for you to bring some form of accelerator into the conversation. And that generally speaking translates into your ability to ingest a certain amount of data about the customer and their circumstances and to draw conclusions from that based on your experiences and what other, other data that you that you have available to you, right? So there's a, it is an, in the consulting space, it's a definite accelerator. It's not just about, you know, humans coming and listening and you know, going away and solving a problem. They, customers are looking for you to be able to bring faster value in a consulting engagement. And typically that's around what we call assets and insights. And assets are typically tools that will in some way ingest facts, data about the customer and their circumstances, um, analyze those and draw some conclusions um, and, and feed those back. So that's one dimension. The other dimension is, is around our use of design and design thinking engaging with customers. So human-centered design, you know, there's a lot of kind of tools there around uh, empathy maps, personas, um, about talking to people, you know, interviewing and so on. And that's super important. Um, but there's a phrase that people use, and I, I, I off, I'm fortunately I keep misquoting it, but it's around this idea about what people think they want, what people really want, what people say they want. They're all very different things, right? And so there's increasingly this view that says 
no, but actually, hang on a second. We need to start using data allied with a human-centered approach to, to draw insights. So actually, the model of design and design thinking, we're talking about this kind of data-mediated or data-informed or data-driven design has been one of the things that we want to specialize on, which is, you know, there are all the things that we learn from actually talking to people, but then there's all the things we learn from looking at the data about people and their behaviors and their interactions with systems and, and, and understanding, you know, either gaps or, or reinforcing points between those two. So, so it's a lot, there's an increasing focus on, you know, using the actual data and not relying on solely on, on subject to research. Um, what is on your radar for the next five years? Retirement. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> um, no, I think there's a, I think if I kind of follow the thread of, um, of what I was talking about there is that, well, no, actually, let me, let me back up a little bit and make it very specific to the company. And then I'll talk to more broadly around, around kind of, you know, broader business. Right. Um, so we, as a company, Kindrel, the, the business that we were before we spun out, what had not actually, um, been an effective user of design. And I, and I, I distinguish design from design thinking because design thinking is one set of processes with people. And then there's the application of professional design. Um, so we had tried it, um, for, if there's anybody with any kind of us background in the audience, they may get the analogy I'm going to draw here, but we used to describe it as the Roanoke of design. You know, we established a colony and it flourished briefly and then you know, it got to a point where all that was left was a little bit of archaeology and some legends, right? But we learned a lot of lessons about the challenge of bringing these disciplines into what is essentially an engineering-led company, right? So for, so for me personally, the challenge of the next, you know, certainly the next two to three years is how do I help lead a transformation where, for example, out of the 90,000 or so of us, we're actually 87, we're near enough to 90,000, um, the number of designers in the company at the moment is measured in dozens. Now, I'm also the global leader, or exec sponsor, I should say, for the design professional Kindrel. In this year, we're going to go from dozens to hundreds. And I suspect over the next two years, that number will get into the low thousands. Because it's hugely important that we apply these disciplines to, you know, how we develop services, how we deliver those services how we understand and meet the needs of our customers, how we understand and meet the needs of our customers' customers. So that's, that's, that's one dimension at a kind of personal and company level that's going to be important for us. The, the other thing that's a huge change for us um, as we've spun out from IBM is that we are moving into a far more open ecosystem of partners um, that we need to work with. Now, People will use those phrases very broadly, but that's a really fundamental change for us. Like we were the, the services part of a, you know, major, major global corporation with, with more than a century of history, huge brand recognition, you know, um, you know, massive investments in intellectual capital and, and you know, um, patents, you know, we, we kind of, we held and have held consistently, or at least IBM had the record for the, you know, the greatest number of patents every year by a corporation. That, that kind of heritage into a world where actually the value we deliver is going to be very much driven by the success we have in leveraging what our CEO describes as convening power in bringing together people like ourselves, Google, Accenture, 
Microsoft, NetApp, you, you name it, right? And that drives, uh, that requires a huge culture change on our part, right? So, so at a kind of a micro level in terms of my personal career, there's two key things that I'm focused on is one is infusing design into our corporation more generally, and also using it to activate the ecosystem and alliances that we have as a company. If I take a kind of broader view over the next five years, um, in terms of what I see with the economy, I think the, the, um, go back to your, your focus on data and AI is, 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 uh, in, as implied by these questions is really important, right? Um, I think that's going to have a much bigger impact on how our industry changes, but is it also brings with it a whole pile of, you know, kind of ethical questions, right? About how we apply data and AI in business. So I think there's the, some of the challenges that we're going to going to have is not and it's not just developing the skills in the application of data and AI insights. It's the sort of ethical development of the consultants. And then I guess the other one, which is, I, I, I mean, I'm on a little bit of a tangent here. Um, but I'm also involved in a broader kind of conversation around professional formation. So what does it mean to be part of a profession for the future? How do you define yourself as a professional across a range of you know technical and consulting professions? What does it mean in terms of professional formation? What does it mean in terms of your kind of longer term career, um, career development? How do you integrate with other professions? And I think that's another kind of fairly significant transformation that's 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 underway so alan anything else or are you guys yeah no no uh, we could go for hours actually um but no that was really good and really uh, there's a couple of things i just want to highlight before we wrap up but uh something that i really appreciate you drawing attention to the different routes into consulting the domain knowledge led route into consulting it's a fascinating aspect of um, broader professional engagement is that the deep domain knowledge is a rare thing and hard to get. And many consulting firms don't have 3PL logistics knowledge, uh, aviation, shipping, um, oil industry, finance, um, specifically in public sector, taxation, customs. All of those detailed technical areas are really valuable for consultancies to have. So on the one hand, they try and grow that internally. On the other hand, they try and hire people in from public sector, from industry sector, to act as leads in those domain specialisms in those organizations. So it was really good. And um, I really loved your uh, example of your, um, your work with IBM when you're in Gujarat and drawing attention to the benefit from acknowledging the human uh, humanity, I suppose, of the social, of society and its collective character, and then seeking to reveal the hidden value of the taken for granted aspects of being citizens in a city and all the things they get, like roads and like that, that famous Monty Python sketch, what have the Romans ever done for us? We need bridges, roads, telecommunications, broadband, all of that. And also lo lovely that you peel back the longer term follow on activities consequent to a spin out of creating a new business from a mature business, which it's a really important journey you're going on. Hopefully we'll find out more at some point uh, how it's gone. Thank you, Tom. Take care. A thank you for listening. The music is Impulse by Ben Prunty 
from his album Chromatic T-Rex and used with his permission. <laughs> 